The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Many therefore took, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The Gospel of the Lord. Good morning. Excuse me. Hey, it's good to see you. I know it's a little bit rainy out, but thanks for being here, joining us, worshiping together. Uh, if you're newer here, my name is Drew. I'm the pastor of Discipleship. And if this is your first Sunday, um, seriously, thank you for coming out. Thank you for being here. If you uh, live in our area and you're looking for a local church home, we'd love to talk with you more. We'd love to connect with you, as Pastor Paul shared. And I'm excited for us to walk through this passage this morning as we get deeper and deeper into the Gospel of John. And as I was preparing, it made me think back to when I was in high school. Um, starting at about junior high, I started participating in, on the speech team. 
Um, and that carried over into high school. And, and I really loved um, this idea of uh, speaking and performing and all that jazz. And uh, one of the categories that I uh, was in is called original oratory. So essentially, you would have a theme, you would have a topic that you would come up with, and then you would write a five to seven minute speech. You would memorize it completely, and then you would get up in front of judges. You deliver this speech a few times if you got to the next rounds, and they would judge you on it, and that's it. I just explained speech contests to you. Um, I'm sure you could get the gist of it. So one that was really interesting and unique, and it's so interesting and unique that it's still in my brain. Um, I believe I was in ninth grade, and we got out of school early, which I loved, and we were doing this contest at another neighboring school, but for the first round, you actually did those in front of classrooms of fellow students. And I remember getting up in front of this classroom of uh, 10th or 11th graders, and I was excited, and I knew I was going to change their lives with this speech that I was going to give. And I had it plotted out in my mind exactly how this is going to go, how it's going to be delivered, how people are going to respond, all those things that you do as a ninth grader who's very proud. And I got up, and I started giving the speech just as I had many times before. And then all of a sudden, wouldn't you know it, my mind went completely blank. So I'm standing there in front of these other kids, I'm waiting for something to come into my mind. I'm standing there for a few seconds, and then I just walk off and sit down. In fact, it was a minute and 37 seconds. I remember it. Shortest speech given in that category that day. Um, I won that award, but it really bothered me, and I felt like I completely failed, and I wanted control, and I had all these ideas of how this was going to look, how it was going to work out, all these things. And as I was thinking about that, it really hit me this idea of control that even today as a 37-year-old, I love control, having it, and I hate losing it. I hate not knowing what's ahead. I hate when expectations are not met. I hate when something drops into my life that I didn't expect or I didn't want or I didn't desire. I'm a fixer at heart. I want to bring about solutions quickly. I oftentimes want to do things my way. Um, you could ask Laura, she would tell you, yes, this is absolutely true. And I think a lot of us struggle with control on a day-to-day -day basis. And by a lot of us, I mean all of us, if we're being honest. We tend to struggle with control, especially when it comes to relationship with Jesus. Now, let me just stop here for a minute and talk to those who have a relationship with Jesus. And if you don't, that's, that's great that you're here. Um, you are welcome here. If you're just examining the faith, Jesus, what this looks like, fantastic. And this message is absolutely for you. If you do have a relationship with Jesus, I think that we especially struggle with this because we're good with Jesus leading in our life or having control in our life as long as I'm not asked to change my calendar, my schedule. It's not an inconvenience. As long as I'm uh, my relationships look a certain way, and they're good, and they function in a certain way. As long as my kids do what they're supposed to do, learn how they're supposed to learn, act how they're supposed to act, I'm good with it. As long as you don't put me in an uncomfortable situation, as long as you don't ask too much of me, as long as you don't ask me to give up something that I value, as long as I don't have to sacrifice too much time, too much energy, as long as there's an easy solution when problems come along, I'm cool with you having control, Jesus. I'm cool with you leading in my life. Basically, as long as things go this way and not that way, as long as I get this and not that. And what makes this area a little bit muddy is sometimes our desire for control is completely selfish and we really know it. But at other times, it's really well-intentioned, but it's still misplaced. And it creates this tension that we see in our life. And so 
whether you're a Christian or not, with this struggle for control and often our inability to really get the control we desire, see the outcomes we desire, comes a lot of frustration, anger. We feel paralyzed in this tension, anxiety, overwhelmed, and completely tired. But thankfully, God loves us and he cares about us enough to where he speaks into us and he, he speaks into this and he actually shows us a really clear solution. Now, it doesn't mean it's the easiest, but it's a clear solution that we're going to look at this morning in our passage that you heard read in John. So before we jump into that, let me pray for us and then we'll dive in starting in verse 45 of John 11. Jesus, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for this word. I pray that you would Bring about things in our life, in our hearts, in our mind, where you want to work on, where you want to really bring to light. God, that we would be able to be honest with ourselves, honest with you, because this is a constant tension in our life, this wrestling for control. This idea of I know best, or I need to do this, or this is sacred, and, 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 I, and I think this is going to cost too much. And so, Jesus, during this time, would you just release these things? Would you bring them up, but would you, would you give us a heart to release these things back to you? So I pray that you'd speak to us now. I pray that you would uh, work in us. And Jesus, I pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so we're going to start in verse 45 here of John 11. Jonathan, thank you for reading that for us. Here's how it starts. It says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, being Jesus. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus has done. So last week, as Pastor Paul preached, what we see is that Jesus literally brings the dead back to life. Lazarus had been dead for a few days. He's buried. Jesus commands him to come out from the grave. Imagine this scene. I wouldn't have been expecting too much, but it's like, what's going to happen? And Jesus, who's or Lazarus, Jesus does it eventually. Lazarus, who's wrapped up, comes out of a grave. Pretty big deal here, right? It shows Jesus' power in his greatest miracle yet over life and death which is critically important because we know where the story's going. And we know ultimately God is going to show his power over life and death through Jesus. But this is really a turning point in his ministry. Up until this point, uh, the leaders around town, the Jewish religious leaders who were very comfortable with the amount of control they had over the people, pretty oppressive, setting a religious bar that people could not attain. They would claim to have attained it so they could keep people sort of under their rule. This was being disrupted, and they didn't really love it. As Jesus is doing these signs, and he's doing these miracles, and he's preaching and speaking in ways that they had never heard, and then all of a sudden, he brings the dead back to life, and they're not happy at all, and things really shift. So in verse 47, it says, so the chief priests and the Pharisees, they gathered the council and said, so essentially, they're like, hey, everybody get together here. He brought somebody dead back to life. We need to talk about this. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, they're being threatened here, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and they'll take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better that one man should die for the people than the whole nation should perish. He did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. 
So despite the leader's best efforts, Jesus gathers a large crowd, a large following. People are starting to believe in him and it threatened these leaders. Why? It threatened by, they were threatened by what they might lose and they were threatened by what they might not get. And when it comes to control in our life, there are usually two big categorical reasons that we strive for control, freedom and security. I'm afraid that something is going to be taken away from me. I'm afraid I'm not going to get, or someone else um, isn't going to get what I think I, they need. Jesus is not who they expected him to be, and he's not working within their plan. And they're afraid, and they're threatened, and they want control so badly, or to maintain the control they thought they had. When I was in, uh, when we lived in uh, Seattle a few years ago, oftentimes a new gym would open up or new trainers would kind of um, sprout up and you would see ads on like Facebook and stuff where it's like, hey, we're looking for 15 individuals in this area and we're going to give you seven days of free workouts and so sign up. So one time I did. I was like, I should really do this. Like I haven't been to the gym and in a year, like I should really go and take advantage of this. They're going to give me seven free days. So I signed up and I showed up. And here's the deal. I, I, I like exercise, but I like certain type of exercise. I'm cool with a treadmill and I'm cool with free weights. But if it gets more coordinated than that, I struggle. And so I showed up thinking that this was going to be one-on-one with a trainer, essentially trying to help you map out a plan, you know, for, for fitness and all that stuff. As I show up, I quickly realize this is a team workout setting. It's me along with many other people, and we are not doing treadmills, and we are not doing free weights. We are doing choreographed workouts together. And once we got to this section, D-I-O, called Dance It Out, I knew I was in trouble. (laughs) I'm okay on a basketball court. My choreographed dance moves, not so much. Luckily, this isn't recorded, but it was a nightmare. I didn't want to be a part of this at all. It was horrible. I'm probably distracting everyone else as I stumble all over the place. I'm completely worn out. I hadn't exercised. It was not in my plan. It was not what I expected. And I'll be honest, I forfeited the next six days of free workouts because they had a plan, but it was to kill me, and my plan was not to show up again, right? (laughs) Wasn't what I expected wasn't within my plan. I wanted nothing to do with it. And seriously, that's what's going on here, though. The leaders were incredibly uncomfortable. They didn't know what to do. So Caiaphas, he says, hey, here's the deal. If Jesus dies, this one man dies for the nation, it's, it's going to be all right. Like the whole nation doesn't need to perish. Rome's not going to mess with us. Things are going to be Okay. And so they started to plot to take Jesus' life because that was their solution. And so here's what we also need to understand here is that the Jews that opposed Jesus, they would have followed him if, if he fit within their political plans and if he gave them the wealth and power that they desired. And that's what they thought he was originally going to do. Like, hey, there's this leader. He's charismatic. He's speaking in powerful ways. People are following him. He could be our hope for the future. He could actually overthrow the government and maybe we get more power than we thought and we get wealth and we get all of these things and yet Jesus is a different kind of king, isn't he? If you have a relationship with him, you probably realize that in your life. 
He's very different. He's not about an earthly throne, but he's about an eternal kingdom. He's not about heavy-handed power. He's about grace, kindness, mercy, and love. And this was unexpected, and it was threatening, and so they wanted to silence him. But before we throw too many stones at these religious leaders, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we day in and day out, we do the same thing. When Jesus doesn't do what we want, when we want, how we want, or ask something of us that we didn't want, we plot a takeover. Maybe we try to force a certain future. We try to step in and fix things. Maybe fix kids, fix a spouse, fix relationships, fix our own insecurities. We try to navigate struggles and wounds on our own. We try to plan out our entire future on our own. We try to hide insecurities away and we end up overcompensating. We try to avoid difficulty at all cost and ensure that a certain outcome and ensure a certain outcome that looks and feels a certain way that we believe will make things better at least make us feel better. We like to have control. This is no surprise because we bought into a false narrative of what having control really offers us. And so did these leaders. If you keep going here, it says in verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went, therefore, but he went from there to the region near the wilderness, a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. And now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and many went up to the country um, from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? Will he not come to this festival at all, feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Jesus is big on timing, not only in his own life. It's not that Jesus is scared and so he retreated, but what we've seen time and time again, he's mentioned this, is that my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. He knew that he had more to do. He knew that there was more to this story before he would go to the cross, before he would offer up his life. And for us, I hope this is encouraging, especially as we wrestle with control, is that Jesus knows exactly when and what you will go through. He does. His word promises that. When you'll face some uncomfortable situations, when your expectations won't be met or things look different or they get complicated, when relationships are going to crack, even break down, when things won't go according to plan, and even when you'll suffer. On one hand, there should be a great assurance to this and a great rest in this. But on the other hand, you might then be asking, well, if he knows all those things, why wouldn't he keep all these things from happening? That's a really valid question. And I think we get an answer in these next couple of verses. So six days before, as we start chapter 12 here, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave dinner for him there. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed, his feet, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I want you to think about Mary here for a minute. We just saw a little bit earlier that her brother died. And as Jesus comes and he's still in the grave, Mary expresses her feelings, her emotions. She says, if you had only been here, if you had only been here, he wouldn't have died. 
She realizes, and her other sister, Martha, realizes they didn't have control over Lazarus' life and death, but she believed that Jesus did. Because she says, even now, I know that you can do whatever you want to do according to your plans. There's this trust, this deep-seated trust within Mary, even in this incredibly difficult circumstance of her brother dying. An area that she had absolutely control, no control over, but she knew the one who did, and her faith begins to increase more and more. Mary could have chosen a lot of different responses, but she ultimately chose to trust in Jesus. Even though she didn't see all the puzzle pieces, even though she didn't know exactly what was going to happen. And now, in this scene, she worships with such great humility. It says that she washes his feet with her hair, which was as lowly a position as you could get. I've never done that. You guys wouldn't want me to do that, but imagine how lowly this is. This is the posture of a servant. Not only that, but she takes this perfume, and we have no idea exactly where she gets this, but just to let you know, like this isn't some like, hey, I went and grabbed this perfume up the street. This is worth a year's wages incredibly expensive. And she brings it out and she washes his feet and she gives ultimately what she couldn't afford because she had what she couldn't afford to lose in a life with Jesus. And it meant more to her. She gets it. The big idea of this entire passage that we're looking at today, I think, is that while our hearts seek control, only Jesus offers the security and freedom that we actually long for. And so the answer to the question that, that we just asked, if Jesus knows all this, if God knows all this, like why does he allow these things to happen that create this tension where we, where we struggle for control? And here's, I think, the answer to that is that Jesus' primary desire is not you becoming happier, but holier. And this isn't meant to be harsh at all. It doesn't mean Jesus wants you to be unhappy. It doesn't mean he doesn't care about your happiness. But his ultimate desire for you, because he loves you so much, is like a parent with a child. My ultimate desire isn't that you're just happy all the time, but that you grow in a healthy, holistic way. Jesus desires our holiness, that we would become more like him, not more comfortable, but more consumed with him, not more safe, but more satisfied in him. It doesn't mean he's causing all of these things to happen in our life, but at times, I think he will allow certain things in our life, but always with a good plan and always for our ultimate good, even if we don't see it exactly like that at the time. And the best plan being that we become more like him, not that he becomes more like us. As we trust him more, we spend more time with him. That's what Mary's doing here. This realization that nothing in your life is haphazard. And God has a good plan. It reminds me of Abraham and Isaac. You know that story? Abraham has this son who he, who he loves, Isaac. And God says, hey, I'm going to ask you to sacrifice your son. Can you imagine the terror in that request? It's like, this is, this is a child of mine that I love. And, and yet he takes his son and he's obedient and, and, they, and they go and they start on this trek up this mountain. And, and imagine this child asking like, hey, where's the sacrifice? Like, where's, where's the lamb? What are we doing? And, and Abraham's like, God's going to provide. God's going to provide. I, he clearly didn't see everything. He didn't know all the answers. I'm sure it was a struggle not to walk off the mountain. It would have been for me like, hey, we're going home. You know what? 
I'm going to figure this out with God on my own, but we're going home. This costs too much. This is too crazy. I need to take control of this situation. We're going back home. I'll fix this. But they keep going, even to the point where he binds his own child, and he's ready to follow Jesus and sacrifice him, and then God steps in, and he provides a sacrifice. And yet in that moment, we see this amazing reliance and trust. Was that easy for him that day? Oh my gosh, it was probably one of the worst days of his life. And yet he chose to trust that it was better for God to be in control than for him. Can I just say that's incredibly difficult? Right? Every single day it's tough. Every single day we're faced with that question of, who is it better that has control, me or God? It's challenging and it's difficult, and yet that's where we find really our greatest freedom and our greatest security. Look at, look at what happens next here. Jesus Iscariot, one of the disciples, he was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, having charge of the money bag. He used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus didn't care about the poor He was bothered by this because he wanted money to come back into the bag, and so he could take the money and he could make himself rich. Judas Judas didn't want a relationship with Jesus. Judas wanted what he thought Jesus could give him. He didn't want a relationship. He wanted a contract. He wanted power. He wanted wealth. I like things to be neat and orderly, and I think a lot of times we like our idea of Jesus to be neat and to fit inside a certain type of box that fulfills all our desires. And when Jesus moves out of that box, we become a lot more like Judas than we'd like to admit. It will cost you to follow Jesus. Let's just make that clear. He says it time and time again. There's a great cost. But the more time you spend with Jesus, even in the tough seasons, the more you press into the heart of Jesus and the heart of God, even in those tough times, even in the dark night of the soul, even when there's huge decisions to make, the more you get to know him, his character, what he's actually about, like Mary does. This is the same Mary who, while Martha's preparing a meal, she's sitting at Jesus' feet, learning, soaking it all in. The more you realize that the cost is absolutely worth it. It's not a light cost, but it's worth it. I do need to mention here, it says, for the poor, you always have with you. It's like, whoa, Jesus, like, don't you care about the poor? This isn't a lack of care for the poor. What he's saying is that we're on the brink of history here. I'm about to give up my life. I'm about to usher in salvation for all people. Disciples, you that have been around me for three years, you still don't get it. And yet Mary does. Leave her alone. Let her keep this for my burial. I've told you time and time again, I'm going to die for the sins of many, and you still don't get it. She does. And that's why she's kneeled before me. That's why she's worshiping me. This passage wraps up. It says, when the large crowds of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, so they've been looking for Jesus, they've been wanting to plot to arrest him, to kill him, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plan to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Makes sense, right? A guy who was dead that's now alive that's saying, yeah, Jesus did that. People are going to believe in, follow. What I want you to see as we wrap this up is that we have three acts in this passage. We have a plot to kill Jesus. 
We have a plot to kill Lazarus. But sandwiched in, in the middle, in between this power struggle with the religious leaders, what we see is the freedom that comes with giving up control and picking up the security that's found in Jesus. Instead of a struggle from the leaders in Judas, we see this beautiful act of worship and humility. We see a woman being changed by Jesus and becoming more like him in such a way that she starts to even model Jesus and his character that Mary kneels at the feet of Jesus. What do we see in Jesus? That he kneels and submits to the will of the Father. That Mary washes Jesus' feet with her hair. We see Jesus wash the disciples' feet in this act of humility before he's betrayed. That Mary gives up her her most valuable possession to Jesus. And Jesus gives up his very life for you and me. What I hope you see today is that Jesus isn't a tyrant who's trying to steal your freedom or rob your joy. He's a different kind of king who wants to remind you of a few things. That in submitting to him and giving your life to him and trusting in him, you're loved as you are. That you're not alone. That you don't have to have it all together and hold it all together. That he isn't going to shame you for your past or take advantage of your weakness or exploit you but he's a king that's actually made himself a friend to broken, insecure people who struggle to give up control like you and me. For the leaders, Judas, and for you and me, it's not really about control as much as it is about what we believe control will offer. And what Jesus offers us may not always look like we expected or be the easiest path, but it's the best laid plan because it's secure in the best kind of king. That he's the best one to let lead in our lives. To let sit in that place. Because he's the only one who would and did give up his very life for his people. That's love and that's a savior worth worshiping with humility and hands open surrender. To lead and to guide every chapter, every sentence, every word of our life. So the application today, it's pretty simple, even though it's not the easiest. Like I said, this isn't easy. This isn't like, hey, just do this. And it's a struggle day in and day out. But the application is, what do you need to hand over? What do you need to surrender? What do you need to let go of? For parents in here, maybe that's, uh, maybe that's your children, in a healthy way, saying, God, these are your kids, and there's some stuff going on, and I, and I don't know how to fix it. In fact, I can't, and I don't know exactly what this is going to look like, and I've been trying to plot their future and all of these things, and it's time that I surrender that to you. Maybe it's these expectations for your life and what life's going to look like or what it should look like or how things need to go, and it's time to hand that over. Maybe it's wounds from the past that haven't healed, and it's time to let Jesus step in and bring some healing. Maybe it's issues of anger and frustration or whatever it is, or maybe it's just this idea of you've been holding on to of, I really don't, I, I, I don't want to be inconvenienced. I'm scared to give over control of my life because Jesus, I'm, gonna, I'm afraid of what you're going to ask of me, but I trust you. I want to trust you. With a faith that I have, I want to hand over my life to you. you. Use me how you will. Step in how you will. 
And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, the beauty here is that he freely offers and invites you into that. Maybe this idea of control is actually what's been holding you back from starting a relationship with Jesus because it's like, hey, I, I feel safer here. I feel more comfortable here. And yet if you look at your life, maybe there's something missing. Maybe it's like, you know what? I've been running on my own so hard. I'm so tired. I, Jesus, I want to trust in you. I want to give you all of myself. I want to give you my worst. I want to give you the stuff that's hidden away. I want to, I want to give you all of this. Would you give me new life? Would you step in? I'm going to trust you. Yeah, Jesus, you, you did come. You did give your life as a perfect sacrifice. You did overcome sin and death. And, and, and I believe that you're where I'm going to find new life and where all these tensions and struggles that I wrestle with, God, where, where they're, going to be, they're going to be handed over to you and I'm going to find rest. Would today be that day? But as we process this and as we sing and as we prepare for these next responses, would you allow God to speak to you and bring up those things? What do I need to hand over today? What do I need to give to you, Jesus? Because I can trust you because of what you've given to me. While our hearts seek control, only Jesus offers the security and freedom that we actually long for. Jesus, thank you for doing that, for being that. It is a struggle. It is not easy. You know that. You know our hearts. You know our minds. You know often our waywardness. And yet you're so patient. You're so loving. You're so kind. It's so hard for us to hand over aspects of our life out of fear that our needs are not going to be met, out of fear that it's going to cost too much, out of fear of what your plan will be. But I pray that we would understand, that we would maybe for the first time grasp more deeply that you are a loving God with a good plan, not to harm us, but to give us the thing that our hearts long for. To not just offer us fleeting happiness, but joy that's found in you and a new identity in you, that we can rest in that identity as your children, that you don't let your kids go hungry, that you don't let your kids go wanting, that you are a good provider, and that you wrap us in your love even when it feels like we're out on our own, like we're in the cold, in you, we are not and we never will be. So show us today, God, what do we need to hand over? Send us out as a church of people surrendered to you to do your will, to do your work, to accomplish your mission in our city here in Charleston and beyond. Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen.